it's Terry White. Welcome to episode three of Why Didn't You? And we've got something a bit different this week. You're probably thinking week three and you're already changing the format. Uh, And this is when I'm glad I don't have a boss. So yeah, I'll tell you what it is. Those first two episodes of this podcast have been... I don't know what you guys think, but I've been incredibly powerful, incredibly affecting. Um, I am so moved by the bravery and honesty of both Ellie and Amber. And there's going to be lots of brilliant, important conversations to come. But when I started this, I just thought, you know, it'd be me and my mates listening to it, maybe people who knew, I suppose, knew who I was, but knew my story, knew what my own relationship is with that phrase, why didn't you? And I've heard from a few of you kind of piecing it together and and what my experiences have been. And so I thought, you know what, before we go any further, why don't I do an episode which is sharing my story. So this week is Terry's story. She said referring to herself in the third person, which isn't at all weird. And I'll tell you something, because the reason I started this podcast was actually to do the opposite of talking about myself. So I've been a journalist for two decades, over two decades, and worked on lots of different magazines and and written for lots of different places. And I have written in the last few years quite a bit about myself, so partly because I had my memoir out coming undone, um, partly because there was a rise, I suppose, in the popularity of that kind of journalism. And when we had a lot of the awful rape myths flying around the other week in the light of those allegations I was contacted by a few editors that I knew brilliant editors saying do you fancy writing a column or an op-ed for us and you know what I actually didn't because I have told my story before and I worry about what actually moves the needle about me repeating you know, quite an awful story. Story, it's plural, I suppose. And does that actually do anything? And so, actually, this project was conceived because I just kept thinking of all these women who don't have a platform that I do because I'm a journalist to tell their story, who maybe have never talked about it, have always wanted to, want to do it in a safe place. And I, I hope that we're creating that safe space together. Who is there listening to those women and girls? Is it really just these rape myths exist on Twitter and and haven't actually propped up our society and our criminal justice system for years? Do you know what I mean? And and those are the things that I've been really concerned with. I, I wanted to be a journalist and I love being a journalist because we get to help other people tell their stories and when it comes to this there will be people interviewed who would never talk about this anywhere else uh, will probably spend a lot of time deciding whether it's the right thing for them to do which is entirely right but otherwise may never ever tell anyone what they share with me 
I may never have the chance. And if they want to and feel like the conversation needs it, then they have to be able to tell their stories. And, you know, there's lots of issues in journalism around representation and which groups are overrepresented, who doesn't get to have their voices heard, who isn't setting the editorial agenda. I come from a working class background um, and I'm, I suppose, not a typical person in journalism in many ways. And so how do we help those people who might not naturally find a place within public conversation to be able to do it in their own way and in a way that they own and that they feel comfortable with? And so in in a way, God, just rip up those normal rules that we've used to decide who gets to tell their stories, who gets to define what the important issues are. Because then I think we start to hear stories we haven't heard before. We start to ask questions we haven't asked. And we start to see this issue as it really exists in the real world, day after day, for our girls and for our women. And if we can make something visible and we start to unpack it, I don't know. I've, I have a lot of hopes, I suppose, and, and ambitions. Ambitions is the wrong word because it's not even that. It's, it's I want to make something that means something. And that sounds so ridiculously naive in some way in this day and age. But if I can't do that, what is the point in me even being a journalist in the first place? So I suppose this is a really long-winded way you have to excuse me, I think it was like seven minutes of me saying the reason I didn't intend to do an episode on me because I don't know if anybody needs to hear more from me. But I have had contact from quite a few of you kind of, you know, asking me about my experiences and rather than being a awful hack and going, you can buy my book. And I thought instead I'd talk to you um, and... You might be thinking, oh, bloody hell, what we got now? 40 minutes of her banging on to herself and us. Um, but what I thought I'd do, because hopefully you've noticed by now that this is not a place for us just to make women relive some of the most difficult experiences of their life. There is sometimes a thing with the way stories are told that is like enjoy all the pain and misery for the next and and that isn't to be glib it's to it's to kind of say that while it's important we share our experiences the point of this podcast the reason it's called why didn't you is because we want to explore the bigger issues we want to look at the connective tissue see how these things exist see where points of intersection were and and start to have conversations about how it impacts all of us and then call it out and and converse with men about it and and start to show these myths up for what they are which is excuse my language but complete and utter fucking bollocks and what can we put in its place understanding empathy that's why i'm doing this episode so what i thought i'd do as we've done it with the other women because fundamentally each week this is one survivor's testimony that's it that's the idea and so basically i want to give you 
my testimony and I want to tackle some of the myths that I feel like my experiences have come up against or that I feel particularly, I suppose, impacted by or strongly by or, or feel um, most violently aggrieved by whatever the whatever way we want to describe it. Um, and in doing so, in talking about those, I'll hopefully share some of my experience. Um, and on that note, I should say, there will be difficult things discussed as in every other week. And specifically this week, we'll be talking about um, child sexual abuse um, and multiple incidents of sexual assault. Now, there is um, one incident experience, I still don't have the correct language, I don't think, or, or language that I'm comfortable with anyway, that I won't be discussing um, not for the same reasons as Amber last week, but because that um, that case is currently, shall we say, making its way through uh, the very early stages of the legal system. And obviously, when something is an active investigation, there are certain rules we have to abide by in terms of what we say and what we publish. And to be honest, it may be something I return to at a later date. It probably will be. Um, but for right now, I, I'm not able to talk about that specifically. But there's lots of other stuff we can talk about. This is my story. Let's start, shall we, with... One of those myths. This one, the first one, is why didn't you scream or fight, speak out immediately? So I was abused as a very young child and that person was tried and convicted and sentenced to prison. There seems to be a belief among some people that you tell somebody and then... A magic wand is waved and that person is uh, tried and convicted and you get your justice. That doesn't happen, as we know, in 99% of cases. So it isn't, disclosure isn't a silver bullet. So only 11% of child sex abuse cases actually end with a charge. Seven years ago, it was 32%, which I think is significant in terms of we know that there are more incidents of child sexual abuse being reported. So we know that in 2021 to 22 in England and Wales, that was the first year it had hit 100,000. And that's in police recording of a child sexual offence. We should say that there is no kind of way of having truly accurate numbers on the number of children abused each year because of the nature of the crime in that it often happens in secrecy, in the privacy of a home, and there is under-reporting. So we don't actually truly know, and, and you'll see different numbers used in different places, uh, but rape crisis, say one in six children, 
We also know that over a third of all police-recorded sexual offences are against children and girls are more likely to experience it. And the vast majority of it is by someone they know. 90% is by someone they know. So we forget as a society, really, how children are routinely not believed, like routinely not believed about so many things, but definitely about this. And what does proof constitute when you're a kid? You know, it is usually committed behind closed doors. So in my case, what happened is that I disclosed and I was taken to the family GP who examined me and he wrote, I, by the way, got access to my um, social care records a couple of years ago now. And it said inquiries with the family doctor had revealed that he had examined Terry, but found no evidence of abuse. But I was examined, but then no police referral was made. And by the account of the records, a couple of months later, a social worker in another context, a local hospital basically, reported concerns about sexual assaults. And at that point, it was investigated. And it struck me how many people down the chain I'd basically had to convince. You know, you report and you get somebody to believe you and then you report again. And you report, um, each time you kind of go through a bit of the process, you have to convince somebody else, right? Because to even be taken to the doctor, I must have convinced somebody at home that there was something that should be looked at. So you've already got, as I say, children aren't routinely believed. You then have a child who won't have the language or, you know, just the the experience or, or, I mean, at that age, and we're talking four, five, six, you have no sense of what that is and, and what what you even call it and what it means and what it signifies. Obviously, I knew it was wrong somehow. And then they're looking for evidence, which they can't find because they were looking for physical harm. Now. Without wanting to get into too many specifics, one of the promises of this podcast was that we wouldn't duck talking about difficult things if it's necessary for the conversation. And for me, this is. So the abuse um, by that guy was essentially oral sex. And of course, that wouldn't leave any physical harm or marks on me. And so that's kind of mad to me that that was that was what was focused on that I didn't have any injuries when actually you know there is there is a note on the CPS website saying that it's a myth that children who are being abused will show physical evidence of abuse. The other I suppose, difficult or challenging thing around having an instant reaction. You're in the privacy of your own home. You're in, you know, I was going to use the word safety, but clearly not. You're in the safety of your own home where this attack happens. Why don't you respond right away? Well, you know, there's there's now lots of 
proof of a trauma response, why kids might freeze in that scenario. But also there's the difficulty of it is somebody in your family or somebody who is trusted enough to be in your home and being given a certain level of access to you. And that does make it much more complicated. What will that do to your family? There is definitely for me a sense of if I said anything, I would break up the family and we would no longer kind of all live together. And at that age, you know, I think you, the the worst nightmare is no longer having your mom or no longer having that little bit of safety or or familiarity that you do have. And there's also a reality around the risks and vulnerabilities of certain children. So over the last five years, there's been lots of work done looking at the relationship between poverty, for example, and the vulnerability of kids to abuse and neglect. There is now a sense of agreement that living in deep poverty increases the vulnerability of children to abuse and neglect. And and it's been said that major reviews of children's social care in England and Scotland have affirmed that family poverty and inequality are key drivers of harm to children. And I think it's the things that that can cause, right? So the economic vulnerability of certain family setups. So my mum and dad divorced when I was two and my mum was pretty much a single, well, she was a single mum and she claimed benefits, but also usually worked part-time jobs, um, but they weren't massively well-paying part-time jobs. And it was a constant juggle for her and a constant worry about money. And that kind of, you know, puts her at an economic vulnerability when it comes to, for example, her relationships with men. Because you can imagine that if you are struggling to feed your kids and clothe your kids and, and you know, pay the bit of rent you've got to pay and, and buy the coal for the coal fire, if that's your reality, then... If you meet somebody and they are able to contribute and make your family life a little bit easier, you can see, I suppose, why that would be attractive, why maybe things would go quicker than they would do otherwise when it came to cohabiting or or inviting that person into the family home. These jobs did not pay particularly well, but were also often during antisocial hours. So she worked in a nightclub, she worked in a pub, barmaid and a chef and a cook the reality is that she would have to work at night if you're not there at night then somebody else needs to look after your kids how do you pay somebody to look after your kids if you're going out to do a job that doesn't pay a lot of money so in our case you know the the man who was sent to prison for abusing me he abused me when my mum was out working at night time because that was kind of for him as a predator that's a perfect setup my mum wouldn't have necessarily thought twice about leaving her kids with her partner basically and we were in that position because of an economic reality that we lived in that my mum couldn't work just during school hours and be there with us the rest of the time Your choices are reduced. So we know we live in a country where there are over 4 million children 
living in poverty. So 44% of children living in lone parent families are in poverty. So that is my situation entirely. And it's due to the fact that you only have one person earning. You might not be getting the maintenance that you need to support your kids. Also, if you're being raised by a single mom, gender equality is not really on our sides in the workplace. And then childcare costs, if you need them on on top of that. We got uniform vouchers to buy our school uniform. Sometimes that stretched to coat and shoes and sometimes didn't. We were on free school meals. And as I say, my mum also claimed benefits. But our, our family life was this kind of... It was a hodgepodge of, of, of things that kept us stable as often as possible. But also one thing doesn't work out or one extra cost comes in. Or actually, if you're clinging on by your fingertips for the majority of the time, that leaves you exposed. That leaves you vulnerable. It leaves you kind of having less ability to make safe choices for your kids. And it's something I bang on about when it comes to childcare, because I think a lot of the childcare debate in this country is specifically around middle-class professional women, right, who basically want to keep their careers quite rightly. Um, I've been there. And also are able to put their kids in childcare and not bankrupt them. Totally understand. I am literally in that position myself. However, working class families and particularly working class women are going to feel the brunt of this because if you cannot afford, not just that it takes loads of your salary and it's, you know, really annoying and unfair and a burden to pay uh, an expensive sum for your nursery, but if it is actually outside of your ability to pay, who's looking after your kid at night if you've got to go and work behind the bar of a pub? or you're having to get up at four in the morning to go and do cleaning. Who's looking after your kids? Where's the money coming from to pay them? Okay, you haven't got any money. Right, why don't we ask a family friend? Why don't we ask this person who we kind of don't know, but, you know, he knows our auntie and says it. And you can see how kids can be put in situations of which they are vulnerable and they are at risk because of the specific economic vulnerabilities that they face. have to talk about how we kind of shape the people committing this abuse into complete evil monsters that we should be able to spot. That's the kind of inference. And the victims into broken girls who were probably always going to end up, you know, damaged and in bother. I certainly didn't feel as a girl growing up on a council estate that there was that much concern about my future and about how what had happened to me would shape my future, would change my future, how it would impact me. Because there was a sense that working class girls in this country are disposable, that we are kind of the the people who the least are expected of and who are written off, right? And there is no sense of it being a tragedy for a girl like me to be abused because this is my story. I'm only speaking from 
the perspective of a white working class girl, there will be girls in other communities who are similarly either more vulnerable or are treated in a certain way when this has happened because of their own points of intersection. And I think we have to recognise the specific ways in which some of us are individually affected and then the way that we, I suppose, universally affected as women. So, and I do want to talk uh, just briefly around the impact and how we're meant to kind of react to it and to live with it. And and my book really dealt with the impact of it. And I was sectioned in a psychiatric ward in New York after overdosing on pills and booze. And I basically always treated alcohol as a way to anesthetize myself. I could escape from the images and the pain in my head. You know, people forget that sexual abuse, assaults, we don't we don't remember these things shapelessly, wordlessly, kind of it, oh, you know, just a feeling. It's it's for me anyway, it's tastes and smells and hard edges and you're not just back in the room you're back in your body you're back in your skin and in those moments I would do anything to get the fuck out of it basically I didn't want to be in my body I didn't want to be in my skin and I spent many years trying to destroy the thing that I felt had been the undoing of me which was me existing in a girl's body and as part of my book I I kind of wrote about the long-term impacts on it. I just want to read you a little bit because hopefully it does it does better than, than I can do just in, in regular words. And it's really about how I struggled, you know, ever since that time, and it's hard to tell how much of my struggles with depression and anxiety and and all of this were created by that, how much already existed. I have been diagnosed with complex PTSD after being diagnosed with bipolar and borderline personality disorder and lots of other things for which I was basically put on tranquilizers and sedated. And I had an amazing female doctor who, after assessing me for you know six months, said it was complex PTSD because a load of bad shit had happened to me. And it was kind of a penny drop moment because I spent my life trying to work out why my brain had been broken. That's how it felt. And then I was like, oh yeah, some bad people did some bad stuff to me and I'm allowed to be angry about that. And I'm allowed to feel sad about that. And this is how that felt when I was a little girl. No one tells you how to be mad when you're six. When you're seven, no one tells you what it looks like, sounds like, feels like. But nobody tells you how not to be either, or why you shouldn't be. I would sneak by rows from the dresser drawer, snap them in half and pull the splintered edges down my arms. I watched myself crying in the mirror while 10cc tried to drown out the kids playing outside. They were still too loud. It had been coming a while even then. But how can it have been coming a while? 
at six, at seven, the pain, the burden, the weight already felt like too much to bear. My slight shoulders buckled and corrected while I struggled to stay on two feet. So it's no great surprise, really, that I ended up on that ledge or that 25 years on and 3,000 miles away, I ended up on another. The wire across the windows replacing the shoelaces that kept me safe when I tried to fall, when I believed I could, that I would. The pain of the past, shaped and shrouded in black, shaking off the soil I'd buried it under, comes crawling towards me, moaning as it drags and pulls itself along. It inches through the door here on the psych ward and I feel it pulling at my hair, let it loosen the pins I'd just fought desperately to keep. I stand at the window, looking at the fluorescent lit bricks of the building opposite, the outline of the city as it roars and settles. I dream of flying, of being, for the very first time, free, even while all I can hear is the ground rushing towards me. So the next kind of myth I want to talk about is actually linked to the last one and it is around proof. You know, why didn't you have any injuries? That sense that when I was first examined that I kind of failed because I didn't have any injuries and because of that uh, nothing was done at the time. Now, the second assault I'll talk about, I've never talked about it actually, only to a couple of people. And when I was in my 20s, I went out for the night with some friends. I had a drink on my own before they got there. A guy was chatting to me. I went to the loo, came back, I'd left my drink with him and then went to meet my friends at another bar. And I basically blacked out within 10 minutes of being there. Um, I woke up the next day after apparently being out of it for 15 or 16 hours. Couldn't see. My vision had gone completely. The room was spinning. I was throwing up. Um, And I knew something bad had happened. I knew. I felt between my legs that something had happened and I found out from piecing it together with my friend that basically I'd been completely out of it like kept falling over on the floor and I was put in a cab and I I think it was an unlicensed mini cab and that was the last kind of they heard my phone was stolen or missing but there was a black large man's glove left in my living room which wasn't at all weird and then I basically had flashbacks and those flashbacks were of myself lying in my bed not able to move or speak or open my eyes but I was aware of somebody stood over me and I heard the snap of his waistband as he put on his boxers or pants and the clank of his belt as he did it up. And I remember thinking, oh, God, he's going to kill me and not being able to open my eyes to look at him. Um, And then I heard the door click 
and he'd gone and I felt incredible relief but still couldn't open my eyes or anything um and my instinct was that somebody had spiked me whether it was you know the guy in the bar or whatever it was but maybe they didn't maybe I somehow did drink too much or or those drinks went to my head or something like that and you know the, the there's been a lot of talk over the years about date rape drugs and I remember, I don't know if anyone else remembers this, I think it was about 15 or so years ago, maybe a bit less, there was a report, a really tiny report of like 200 students that basically proclaimed that date rape myths are an urban myth and that women were using them to drink themselves into oblivion and then and then claim they were assaulted. And I remember, the reason I remember this is I remember the headline on the Daily Mail and it was date rape drug. No, dear, you just had too much to drink. I mean, it was the dear for me, um, which I mean, as well as being massively offensive, I mean, so patronizing, it's insane. But this sense that, you know, women overstate it, that women get bladdered essentially and then try and blame something else so I think um there was a YouGov survey in 2022 where basically one in 10 women has said they'd had their drinks bite 40 percent of people didn't think the police would believe them if they reported it which really resonated with me and and it's actually you know, uh, um, we're talking about proof. It's also, why didn't you report? Because I didn't report this. What I did do is I went to a centre to be examined and they took blood tests but warned me that, you know, that it could well be that if even if I had been drugged, it would be out of my system. And they examined me. And as I was being examined, I had... Um, and this is graphic, so if you need to skip this bit, please do. Um, there were bite marks on my breasts, like human bite marks. Um, and I had bruises and a bang on my head, and uh, I was a bit of a physically a bit of a mess. And it never occurred to me to take it any further. They rang me up to tell me that they didn't find anything in, um, I don't know if it was a urine sample or a blood sample, it's quite a long time ago now, but they told me this and the woman on the phone was really not very sympathetic. She didn't kind of give me any options as to what I could do. Could I still take it forward if I wanted to? What do they do with the results? Do they keep the fact? I mean, I just remember saying thank you and we both hung up and I just shelved it in my mind to the back of my mind and to be honest, I felt guilty and I felt shamed and I felt like I'd brought it on myself because I'd either got too drunk or I hadn't watched my drink closely enough. But that was a headline directed at women, which was based on 200 women answering this survey, um, you know, calling it an urban myth. It's, it's, I mean, it's horrific, really. And, and you know, the, re the reality is that rape myths aren't just kind of men shouting offensive things at us on social media. It isn't a new thing that suddenly appeared with Twitter. 
these are beliefs that are sown within the fabric of our society in multiple ways. One of those ways is through the media. I've been a journalist for over two decades. I know how that works. When there were stories last year about people being kind of jabbed in clubs, there was an immediate disbelief, right? And a lot of these things come back to disbelief. So I did get in a cab because my friend put me in. There was, I I believe firmly, that there was a man in that bedroom with me that he hurt me. How else would I have bites on me? I believe that. I believe that something terrible happened to me. People wouldn't believe me because I was in that bad estate. And the reality is, I'm not going to lie to you, is that over the years, I've got myself in some terrible states by drinking. Some of those times have been, to be honest, for fun, and I've gone too far, But a lot of those times, and I had problems with drinking in my 20s and in my 30s, a lot of it was because I was self-medicating for years. Like I mentioned earlier, like it took me out of my body and my brain at the same time. It seemed like a miracle, quite honestly. And so I often ended up in states that I shouldn't have done. And I felt ashamed about that. I felt complicit in whatever had happened to me. And I thought, well, what did you expect to happen? And maybe there was a luck in not remembering. I I remember I told somebody what had happened. um, And that person said to me, well, you should be grateful. At least you weren't killed. And that's kind of the rationale we're given as women to cling on to. Something awful may have happened to you. I will never know what happened during those hours, but at least I'm alive and I should feel grateful for that. And I was told that, well, at least you don't have the memories to kind of torment you. I do have a flashback of somebody standing over me and I I probably can't articulate for you what that fear feels like. And there'll be women listening to this who know exactly what that feels like and knows is probably feeling that right now along with me. So I'm going to do one final one, um, which is, I suppose, about response. Ellie talked about this. It's how we are meant to behave as victims. I think there's expectations, you know, why didn't you seem more distressed if it was such a bad thing? So when I was a kid and I was going into school every day, I was apparently a happy child. So in my social services files, it says she seems happy in school. Teachers report that she is not showing any signs of distress or emotional disturbance in the aftermath of the incidents. At home too, Terry continues to present as a happy, well-adjusted child. Um, I mean, I was also having, I was wet in the bed every night. I was, um, clearly there was something going on with my behavior. It said that I was having temper tantrums, especially when I was disciplined. Um, That sentence makes my blood run cold. And so some of it, what that was clearly seen as just being a kid, being a naughty kid, 
I don't know what disturbance they were looking for, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure nobody was talking about masking in the 80s and how you do what you need to do to continue on in the world. One of the things is, yeah, why didn't you seem more distressed? Why didn't you seem more upset? And it seemed to, to them that there was no lasting impact of it, even though obviously there's lasting impacts of that, especially on a kid of that age. And that kind of act, I suppose, was something I kept up for years because I thought the reality was so dark that that it would just be too hostile or off-putting or not nice for people. And the reality is it's somewhere in the middle, right, which is talking about what happened to me. I didn't do it for years. A lot of people didn't know until... Uh, my book was published. A lot of people who I'd known for years never knew anything. People say to me, oh, were you scared? God, it must have been awful. And I was like, yeah, I was fucking terrified. I was convinced I was going to be fired. I thought people would pity me or would not take me as seriously or would feel sorry for me or something. But actually, it freed me because instead of having to pretend to be something or someone, I was just myself. But I'm always conscious about the judgments that are being made about me while I talk about it, whether I'm acting like a real quote-unquote victim. Because you don't want to scare people by being hysterical. And you also don't want to seem like you're not over it because everybody's meant to be over it. I think there's so many public perceptions. And as I said, those perceptions can also be seen in in judgments by the police and in judgments in court and how jury seals, do they sympathise with us? Do they believe us? And that's what all these things ultimately come back to for me. What do we have to do to be believed? What do we have to have? How do we have to look? How do we have to sound? What thing do we need in our hand to prove that this happened? You know, these, everything comes back to being believed and then another person believe them and another person believe them. The number of people from start to finish that you have to convince, it's not just the people on the jury or or a judge or the CPS, it's each, each stage there's a number of people you have to convince. And if you start from a position that women are liars and that they more often than not lie about sexual assault, then is it any surprise where we are, where we have decriminalised one of the most brutal crimes against women and girls? So that was my story, my testimony. Thank you for listening. I hope it hasn't uh, hasn't been disappointing hearing from me this week. I just thought, you know, when I'm chipping in and I'm, I'm talking to women and we're in conversation, it will help to know my own experience and my own perspectives on this. 
you know, we talk about journalists of being independent and being, you know, not having skin in the game. I have so much skin in this game and I do not apologise for it. But I want to be honest and open about where I'm coming from, about what's happened to me. And then I want to speak to women who probably reveal something else, who have their own points of intersection, who have their own specific stories. So next week, we will be back to business as usual. Um, If you've got any comments or questions, you know where I am. All of the sources and stats and support organisations, as usual, will be in both the show notes, but they are also in our Instagram post that is pinned and um, should be on Twitter as well. I'll check. Any support you need, any help, please do reach out to those organisations. If you are looking for independent support or advice on something in particular, please, you can message me or Rape Crisis England Wales and Rape Crisis Scotland, both of whom are online and the numbers are within the show notes and are in every show notes, actually. Um, They are there for you. They can also recommend other organisations if there's something in specific that you need help, advice or information on. So next week, we'll be back with another Survivors Real Story. Thank you for listening to mine. That was Terry's story. What's yours? See you next week. <laughs>